Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Certainly, probably familiar to all of us, is the idea that we are called the salt of the earth and the light of the world uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to go ahead and read, starting at the beginning again of the Sermon on the Mount through the Beatitudes uh, into today's passage. So it'll be verses 1 through 16 of Matthew chapter 5. And as I read, just to give you a clue, I think, on how to interpret what Jesus is saying, the description of what we are called, what we are, and what we are called to be in Christ in the first 12 verses is what makes us the salt and the light. So as we hear the Beatitudes, know that that's what makes us the, the very salt and light that we are called to be in these verses. So let's read, to, uh, let's read the passage, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, I'm going to start a little bit at the end, and then we'll go back to the beginning today, just to kind of let you know where we're going. I'm going to have an introduction for a few minutes. After the introduction, I've got three points, and these three points, we'll, we'll, we'll go through them twice, so that we're going to use the exact same three points for the salt passage and the same three points for the light passage, and the themes are very similar. So we will walk through the same three points two times uh, in a few moments, but first I would like to really begin at the end. Look at verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know, the last few days at some point, and I got to chapter 6, verse 1, and I was thinking of this text, and look at what you see in 6.1. Sounds like there's some tension, but there's not really. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, does anyone see what I'm seeing here? So in 5.16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds. 
your good works, and give glory to your Father in heaven. So let your good works be visible. Let people see them so that they can glorify God. Chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, you see there's a superficial tension between these two verses. Do you feel that? So, in one sense, show your light to the world, let them see it and glorify God. In the other passage, don't, don't do righteous deeds to be seen by other people. You'll have no reward from your Father. And you may already know the answer to the riddle here, but I think the answer to this is the motivation for the actions that we are doing makes all the difference, right? You will see throughout this sermon, Jesus contrasting self-righteous types who do outward good works for their own glorification and those who sincerely do acts of righteousness because they love the Lord for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. This is so tricky in church world. It is so easy at times to move into one or the other of these categories. But Jesus is saying, listen, doing your good works to show off so that you get attention for yourself, self-glorification will receive no reward from the Father. But doing our deeds of righteousness so that God is glorified, so that Christ gets the honor, that will be rewarded by our Father in heaven. So the question is, why under the surface am I doing what I'm doing? And just to kind of put the end of the sermon at the very beginning of the sermon, to kind of have it in our minds as we work through this, the question is, are we living and acting and working in such a way with our lives that our words, thoughts, actions, attitudes are ultimately an attempt to garner praise for ourselves, or are they genuinely a desire to get honor and attention and glory to God? I mean, we just sang it in the song that, that apart from God's, let people, I won't get the words correct, but uh, all I have is Christ. When he says, basically, let the world know that it's only by your strength I can be living the life that I'm living. It's not by my inherent strength. It comes from above. It comes from you. So God's glory is at the foundation of all of this, How exactly will God and Christ be glorified by our lives? We throw around this language of glorifying God and honoring Christ, and we say it a lot, and we should say it a lot. What exactly does that mean? What what exactly is the essence of this, of being salt and light, of getting all glory to God, uh, the Father, and to Christ? When people can see in our lives that at foundation, none of us is perfect, But at foundation, if people can see glimpses of the idea that we truly love Jesus, value Jesus, esteem Jesus, truly want to honor Jesus at foundation more than we want the other things of this world, if people can perceive that through our attitude, actions, words, choices, that Jesus is our central priority, that He's the Son and everything in our life is revolving around Him. None of us is perfect. I I know this. But that is where we are going. That's what we want to be like, that Christ is central and everything finds its, 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 its point of reference in Him. As people see Him as most glorious in our life, most valuable, most desirable, what we delight in the most, the treasure of our life, that will be evident in our actions. Whatever we treasure most shows in our actions and our desires and our attitudes. And if Christ is central, if we treasure Him, not just know He's real, not just say, oh, I believe in Him, but do I treasure Christ at the center of my life, and is it visible to others? And when that is happening, when I am treasuring Jesus more than stuff, more than convenience, more than a raise, more than the job, more than the family, more than all these other important things, when people can perceive that, that is when God will get glory and our light will shine 
before other people. So as we are salt and light, I'll try to explain what these are more in, in a moment. As we are salt and light, by, by the way, Jesus does not say that you should become salt and light. There's no command to become salt and light. He says you are the salt. You are the light. If we've come to know Christ, we don't have to become salt and light. We are in Christ, salt and light. The question is, what are we going to do now that we're in that position? So when we, when we go into the world to be salt and light, there are different ways we will, be, we will have responses. And this will echo the last few weeks. Here's positively the kind of responses you may hear. And you don't, don't try to turn to all these. Just read a few verses. Titus 2. This, this verse doesn't get a lot of attention. Titus 2, 7 and 8. Paul says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. This is coming from a sincere heart, not a hypocrite heart, not a Pharisee. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. See, if our life is actually beginning to back up what we say, we admit that we're sinners, but if our life is truly beginning to back up what we profess to be and what we profess to know and believe about Christ, in those moments, someone may not want to hear what you have to say. They may want to slander your name as evil, but they know in their own conscience, well, you're not a hypocrite. You're actually consistently living out your faith. It's very hard for them to speak ill of you because they're going to be put to shame because people can see you can't really do that. 1 Peter chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's almost a paraphrase of Jesus' words. Now, I know this one, I, I mention this verse a lot. I'm not going to apologize for that, but I, this is a verse I bring up a lot. But it's so fitting for this topic. Just listen real quick from 1 Peter 3. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, we all know this is the apologetics verse, the defending your faith verse, because the word apologetics comes from this verse, to defend your faith. But that's not what I'm focusing on right now. What I'm focusing on is the last part of that verse. For anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Now, I've heard pastors say, has anyone asked me or you recently for the reason of our hope? What, what, what Peter's getting at is this. First Peter is written to a church that is being persecuted. Just read chapters 2 and 4. They are being persecuted for their faith. Very clearly, a fiery ordeal has come upon them to try their faith. And they're in the midst of persecution. And Peter says here, you should have such a hope in Christ. Your roots in Jesus should be so deep that they should transcend your circumstances, that when you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, your roots in Jesus are going so deep that even then, people look right into your eyes and they see there's not a hatred coming back at them. 
There's actual compassion in your eyes when you look at the person who despises you for your faith. There's actual love in your eyes. There's a, I care about you. I want what's best for you. It's real. It's not put on. It's not a show. It's not grit your teeth and act like it. It's, it's actual Holy Spirit love for your enemies coming through your mannerisms and your expression. And in that moment, if they see joy and peace and contentment, when all around your soul gives way, they will say, you have a treasure that I don't have. Because if I was going through what you're going through, whether it be cancer or persecution, whatever you're going through that's difficult, if, if, if I see the steadied, calm joy and peace in a believer's eyes, I as an unbeliever have to scratch my head and say, I don't know how they can be maintaining that kind of peace because it doesn't make sense to me. If I was going through that trial, I don't know how I would handle it. I think of a family at, uh, from Westminster where Jerry and I teach and where Steve is the principal in the high school, uh, a family there, the Krieger family, and uh, the, the, mo- the mom has taught at Westminster for several years, but their son, Anderson Krieger, has had cancer, childhood cancer. Um, I got to teach him for a few years, and his cancer relapsed, I think, in his junior year of high school, so he was gone for a semester getting severe treatments for cancer. It was just a heart-rending time to, to, to be there. And, and I don't know his dad as well because he doesn't work at the school, but I know his mom pretty well from working at the school, and I think Taylor knows her as well. And uh, my goodness, when his mom talks about, I mean, just, I, I have no reference point for a teenage son who is going through severe cancer and cancer treatment, is in the hospital for weeks at a time, losing his hair at multiple points in his life from a very early age. How in the world do you get any sense of peace or stability when that is happening? That, that is beyond me. And yet when Mrs. Krieger would write these emails out and she would send them out and we would read updates, absolutely glowing off the page in every email is joy and confidence in God's sovereignty and goodness in the midst of this trial. Anderson's in his fourth week of treatment. It's been difficult. Thank you so much for your prayers. I don't know what I would do if I did not have this this rock of God's sovereignty and goodness in my life to stabilize me. Now listen, if I'm not a Christian and I'm reading that, there's no file for me to put that information in that fits with my knowledge of the world. You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't have a prearranged filing cabinet where I go, okay, I understand like all these different things in life. I can kind of file everything I hear away somewhere. When I read her blog posts and her her entries into, into into their journey through childhood cancer, if I'm not a Christian, there's no place where that neatly fits. And so what's going on? I can imagine if I was not a Christian at some point going to her and saying, ma'am, can you tell me what is really going on here that allows you to have this stability? Because if I was in your position, I would have nothing but sheer anxiety, sheer terror and fear. I would have nothing but that. And she would be able to explain the gospel to me. So whether it's persecution or just run-of-the-mill suffering of varying degrees, do we have that rock down below that, that gets people to ask us for our hope? Let me move into our major points here. So let's begin with the salt, and the points are very simple. Uh, Christ's implication, Christ's solution, and Christ's warning. And again, we will work through these three points twice for both salt and light. Christ's implication, which is against the world, Christ's solution, which is for the world, and Christ's warning, which is for the church. Now, point number one here, I'll say more when it comes to the light, but I'll just briefly mention this first point, Christ's implication. Uh, One pastor got me thinking about this point in particular. Jesus may not say it directly, but it is 
absolutely implied by what he says. Let's look back at our primary text, Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth. These are all true followers of Christ here. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, a word about salt. I didn't know almost anything about how salt was used in the first century. Don Carson says these words about salt in the first century. You were wondering, weren't you? Uh, what, is, well, what was the use of salt in the first century? Well, here's probably the primary issue going on there. Carson writes, salt was used in the ancient world to flavor foods just like today, but above all, salt was used as a preservative rubbed into meat. A little salt would slow decay. I read off one website that salt is effective as a preservative because it reduces the water activity of foods. The water activity of foods is the amount of unbound water available uh, for uh, growth and chemical reactions that can, that can pollute the meat. So Carson says, strictly speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound, but most salt in the ancient world derived from salt marshes or the like rather than by evaporation of salt water and therefore contained many impurities in it. The actual salt, being more soluble than the impurities, could be leached out, leaving a residue so dilute it was of little worth. Now, if you could follow that, I think the basic idea is correct, and almost everybody goes the same direction on how to interpret this. Flavor has got to be part of it, and this Thursday night we'll, we'll talk about the flavor aspect in Colossians 4, about your speech being seasoned with salt. We'll talk about that on Thursday night. But I'm going to emphasize the preservative nature, which I think is Jesus' primary emphasis here. Just like, okay, today, there's going to be a few in the room. Some people love their beef jerky in this room, I'm sure. Beef jerky, you look at the back, you look at the salt content, you're like, holy cow, it's pretty high. Why? Because it's a similar process there. You've got a lot of salt there, so the meat does not go bad nearly as quickly without it. And back then, there was no refrigeration system. So if you had meat, you had to salt your meat to try to get, that, try to get the, the water and the moisture out so that it would last longer than it obviously would otherwise. And that was a major function of salt in the first century. If you don't have a refrigeration system, you are in some trouble if you have meat. And so that was the primary use of salt. So applying this to us today... Here's what Jesus is, uh, the implication Christ is making both here and we'll see in a moment. He is saying something not complimentary about the world. He is saying that the world left to itself is like putrefying meat. It is like meat that is going to go bad. And he's speaking of the moral corruption of this world as it begins to fall apart and is lost without Christ. So he begins to offer a solution. Point number two, Christ's solution for the world is his true followers, the church. Carson also adds these words, quote, The point is that Jesus' disciples are to act as a preservative in the world by conforming to kingdom standards or norms, the Beatitudes. They are called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low or constantly changing or non-existent. Therefore, they can discharge this function only if they themselves retain their virtue. Now, this is crucial and obvious. Salt only has effect so long as the salt is distinct from the meat. Salt has to maintain its saltiness, its distinctive characteristics. As soon as the salt begins to be diluted and losing its very unique uh, uh, attributes, as soon as that happens, it is completely useless. It has no purpose anymore. The only thing it is fit for is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And so we as Christians to impact society, 
the way we impact society is not what you so often read amongst Christians who talk about contextualization to the point where you end up losing truth in the Bible. So often Christians speak of contextualizing the gospel. I think I understand, you know, you want to speak the language of the people you're talking to. You don't want to have unnecessary stumbling blocks in the way of your audience. I, I understand all those things. First Corinthians 9, Paul says, I became all things to all people that by all means I might win some. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, but not outside the law of Christ. Yes, absolutely, we should be sensitive to who we're around, and we should not add unnecessary stumbling blocks to the gospel and to our testimony when we are around any kind of unbeliever. That's true, but there's a kind of contextualizing that very quickly is compromising, where salt is no longer distinctly salt. There's this idea that says, basically, if churches or Christians want to really reach the world, we need to look, talk, act, sound just like the world around us. And if they see that, hey, Christians aren't so strange. After all, they watch the exact same shows I watch. They watch the exact same movies, the exact same music. They talk the exact same way. They even use some of the same curse words I use. They're just like me. They're no different at all. At the end of the day, I kind of like these Christians. They're kind of great. This is awesome. Well, at that point, you may have won the affection of the world, but you've also lost your saltiness in the process. We, the very point of being in this world is not to be just like the unbeliever. The point of being a witness in the world is to be distinct from the unbelieving world. This is not a self-righteousness. This is not a pat yourself on the back, look how much better I am. This is what God's grace does in the life of helpless sinners. God's grace doesn't do nothing. Sometimes we can sound so humble, we act like God doesn't actually change us. I'm just like everybody else, just a sinner like everybody else. I hope not. If you know Jesus, you're not. And if you're just like everybody else, then you don't know Jesus. You, you, you understand this? God's grace transforms His people. I was dead in sin when I was 15 years old. I was dead in sin. All I thought about was me. That was it. That was all that was going on in my world was me and my glorification for a 15-year-old mind. That's what I was all about. Bible was boring. Church was boring. My dad's a great preacher, but I did not care a lick. I was sitting there drawing on the bulletin. And I, didn't, I didn't care what was going on around me. And yet, when God got a hold of my heart when I was 16, did he make me perfect? No. But God changed fundamentally who I am. He changed my deepest longings and desires. And even though I was 16 and flawed in so many ways, I was at that moment, coming out of the summer of 2003, I was, whether I fully realized it or not, I had been transformed into salt, and I had been transformed into light by the sheer grace of God in my life. And if we know Christ, His grace makes a difference. I, you know, as the old saying goes, I may not be who I want to be one day, but I know I am not who I once was. The Lord has done a transforming work in my life, and we must be distinct from the world in order to reach and win the world around us. Now, there's big scale and small scale application for how the church is salt in the culture. Let's start big scale. Christianity has tremendously impacted the way people think in the Western world. Now, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but see if this makes sense to you. When I talk to people who are skeptical of Christianity, nine times out of ten, their objections to the Christian faith are, unbeknownst to them, based on Christianized assumptions that they've absorbed from the culture that they don't even know that they're using. So, for, for, for instance, what, what people so often think, you know, every human being has dignity and worth and value. That's not something that all people have always believed. That's a Christian belief, distinctly Christian. 
And it has so pervasively spread through the Western culture that people today talk about human rights and human dignity and all these things all the time, not even realizing that if they're an atheist, they don't have any foundation for human dignity or worth in the first place because they're a cosmic accident heading, coming from nothing for no reason, heading towards nothing for no reason, and they want to act like we really matter in the middle. But that doesn't logically follow. The idea that we all have dignity and worth is a distinctly Christian belief. And it is so pervasive in our culture that people absorb it like the air you breathe, not even knowing it's going into your lungs like the last five seconds, you probably didn't realize you were breathing, but you were. And you're just breathing in and out. And we just absorb the culture around us. And before long, we are saying things that are coming from a Christianized background, and we don't even know that's where its origins are from. So, so often, Christian, Christianity has a massive impact on society. William Wilberforce, over a century ago, overturned the slave trade in Europe because of his Christian convictions as a politician. He spent his whole life doing nothing but trying to end the slave trade, and right before he died, he won. It was overturned. Why? Because of his belief in the dignity of those human beings who were being mistreated by that system. So Christianity has a salt. You see, it's reversing the effects of sin. It's, it's preventing corruption on a large scale, there there are massive ways in which Christianity has done great good. I'm not saying all Christians have done perfectly in human history. There's lots of flaws, but there has been great good that has been done. Hospitals exist around the world because of Christianity. If you look back at the background of how hospitals were developed and how they spread as rapidly, it was primarily through Christian movements in those ages. Adoption and fostering and pregnancy, crisis pregnancy centers are so frequently participated in by believers in Christ, and on and on. Going to a smaller uh, scale perspective here, think about this. R.C. Sproul told a story. Now, it's a little confusing. He told a story about four guys who were golfing. One was a very famous Christian very famous Christian. And then there were a couple of famous, there was a president of the United States was one of them at the time, decades ago. Very famous Christian and a very famous golfer. And the fourth guy who was golfing, it was golfer of the year. He had won some award that year. And so there's this incredible foursome. President of the United States, super famous Christian, and a couple of famous golfers are all on, uh, going around shooting, golf, shooting 18 holes of golf. After the 18 holes of golf were over, uh, R.C. Sproul knew a guy who knew one of those four guys are you lost yet in the story? So, <laughs> so R.C. Sproul said his friend walked over to the golfer of the year, okay? Not the president, not the famous Christian, this golfer of the year is not a believer. He walked over to him, and he was friends with the guy, and he walked over and said, how did it go playing golf with those three? And the guy responded and named the famous Christian and said, this guy would not stop shoving religion down my throat for 18 holes. And the guy goes, wow. And so the guy storms off, gets a bucket of balls on like the drive and just starts driving them down the driving range, just hitting bucket of balls over and over and over and uh, just letting off steam. And then R.C. just sits there for a while and the guy goes back over and the guy kind of cooled off after a few minutes, comes back and he goes, okay, so that Christian, he really came on hard, didn't he? He really poured it on strong. And the guy goes, well, actually, he didn't say a word about his faith. I just had a bad round of golf. And R.C. Sproul said he scratched his head and thought, what in the world was that reaction? You understand R.C. said, similarly, he said, when I'm on the, he used to play golf all the time. He's in glory now, but when R.C., he played golf for a long time and was apparently a decent golfer, and R.C. said whenever he was, on the, uh, whenever he was playing golf, he would run into some strangers, you know, some guys he'd catch up with he didn't know, and he said, I, I dreaded the question when they asked me, what do you do for a living? 
He said, because as soon as I said I was a minister, they said they all started apologizing for their bad language. They said, I'm so sorry I said this, please forgive. Like, they, everything starts changing. Why? What's going on? It's salt, right, in action. There, there, is a, there is a corrective, preservative effect of God's people being present in a society. We're not perfect. I say it over and over. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. But a glimpse of God's holiness coming through His flawed people actually does have an effect on the consciences of those around us. A coworker finds out that you're a Christian. Uh, uh, someone in, I mean, I was in college. Teacher showed, I was in the sociology class, I think it was, and teacher showed, I didn't, I, I closed my eyes, honestly. It was, it was some sexual scene of some kind. I don't, I don't even know what, what, what happened. I closed my eyes. And afterwards, we left class. I think, why are we watching this? Left class, and a friend of mine who was Jewish, not a Christian, he, he looked over, I think his name was Chad, and it, he looked over at me and said, hey, he said, he knew immediately that that was not right, and he knew that it probably bothered me, even though I wasn't making a scene about it. He's like, you, that, you probably didn't like that, did you? And we, had, we ended up having a little conversation about morality, and I got to share a little bit of my faith with that guy at the time. But it is, we don't have to apologize for being different. Uh, that, that guy who got so mad on the golf course, the famous Christian wasn't even sharing his faith. It was just his presence and his reputation that was all it took to bother this guy's conscience, and it made him kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable just being around this famous, well-known uh, believer. Okay, point number three as we work through the salt, Christ's warning for the church. Don't lose your saltiness. This is a warning not to be Judas, not to be Demas, who's again, we'll talk about, Lord willing, on Thursday night. These people who professed faith in Christ, they became part of God's visible body. In modern day language, prayed the sinner's prayer, was, were baptized in a church, joined a church, went to Bible study, read their Bibles, regularly participated in the church. They looked salty, and then 10 years go by or 10 months go by, and suddenly I don't really want to go, I don't really want to read that, I'm getting more into these other things. The passions begin to shift, and over time, the salty difference of the life begins to fade, and the salt has lost its saltiness. I don't believe anyone can lose their genuine salvation, but I do believe that professing Christians can show themselves to not be genuine Christians. And um, I'll just, I'm not trying to just throw someone under the bus. This is a, just a well-known Christian, Josh Harris, uh, Joshua Harris. I'm sure you've heard of him, many of you. He wrote the book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and Boy Meets Girl, and Stop Dating the Church, and all these different books over the last 20 years. He was a well-known pastor. I listened to him preach numerous times. I would have his sermons. I, listened, I, I was helped by a number of his sermons. I recommended his books to people in our church a few years ago. Well, then all of a sudden, he divorces his wife. He comes out saying he's no longer a Christian. He takes a picture at a gay pride parade eating a rainbow-sprinkled donut. I mean, he goes from a seemingly rock-solid pastor appearing to be salt, and then he slides away, and he has lost his saltiness. And if he does not repent, his saltiness will not be restored. We don't want that to be true of any of us. All right, light. we got to keep moving. Light, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Now, just hear me out on this. This is going to echo what we heard yesterday in American Gospel a little bit. The world, Jesus is saying, here's point number one, Christ's implication against the world. Not only is the world corrupt with the salt illustration, now it is what? It's dark with the light illustration. The world is in darkness. And listen, the the world wants to lead especially younger people astray on the issue of anthropology, who people are, gender, sexuality, male and female, gender roles, marriage. The world wants to lead, I mean, the world is doing everything in its power to lead our children into the dark on these issues in a way that is going to be unimaginably destructive for this coming generation. That is darkness that is not light. It may sound sophisticated, cool, hip, the right side of history. It is none of those things. The world wants us to believe that there are many legitimate paths to God, that there are many right ways. The world, like we heard yesterday, wants to reject any notion of God being holy or having wrath against sin and sinners. Certainly, the doctrine of hell is mocked and laughed at. Now, just stop for a second. If hell exists, and I believe with all my heart it does, but I'm going to use the word if. If hell exists, think about how unbelievably wicked it is if I told my three kids it doesn't. In other words, the light may at times be unappealing, but if it's real and true, the most urgent need is to see what's real with light. And what greater light do young people need than to see eternity? You don't just die and cease to exist. When you die, you go before God, and there's eternity in front of you. And there is a new creation, a new heavens and new earth, resurrection and righteousness with Christ forever with eternal joy. And there is real justice and punishment for sinners who reject Christ. And these two realities This light is unimaginably valuable to have and to give to others. The world wants to teach you that human goodness is real, not depravity. The world wants to teach you that sins are not in fact sins, but rather disorders that you are simply the victim of. The world wants to teach you that you are the product of blind natural forces without any need for God, and that your fleshly desires are simply primal animal instincts that will not be brought into judgment before our Creator and judge in eternity. That is darkness, and we have the light, and we owe it to a lost world to give this light to those who do not yet have it. Point number two, Christ's solution for the world is the light of the gospel and the truth of Scripture. This will be brief on this point. I'll just say, light defeats the darkness not by mimicking the darkness and not by being shy about its light. It is not, listen, it is not loving to be shy about our faith. And I am so often. We don't take our light and hide it under a basket. You light it and you put it in a prominent place so that it gives light to the house. Listen, I'm going to convict myself when I say this. There's, There's some real hypocrisy here. So I want to grow into what I'm going to say, but I'm saying it to all of us. Look at the verse here, verse 15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Do your coworkers know that you're a believer? Do your fellow students, any of them, 
know about your faith in Christ? Have you given even some clues? Do your more distant relatives know about your faith? Do your neighbors? I'll tell you, that to me is one of the hardest ones. It is so hard for me with my neighbors because you see them constantly and I just feel like, oh, like they're, they're going to see me like in a bad mood or something and it's going to ruin what I'm trying to do. And so I, I, there's this, I have a hitch with my neighbors. I, I'm just a coward in my neighborhood. But that's, I, I am not letting my light shine. We, our houses are packed in like sardines in our neighborhood. I can't go out to put the trash out without seeing 17 people like, hey guys, how are y'all doing? So I, I mean, I've just been a coward. So I, I want to be more forthright and bold with the people I live right around? Do people know? Is our light hiding underneath the bed or underneath the basket? Or is it put in a prominent place unashamed? The darker the world is, the brighter our light will shine. How about this? The city on the hill cannot be hidden. This is the corporate witness of the church. Every local church should be a city on a hill where everyone together is a corporate light that shines brightly to others. Point number three, Christ's warning for the church, which is not to hide our light. You know, there's two temptations here. One is to kind of be in a monastery, you know, kind of metaphorically to say, I'm going to let my light burn really bright, but I'm going to do it kind of separated from all those people out there. I'm just going to kind of get in my little enclave. I'm going to be really salty and really bright, but just around the safe Christian friends I have, I'm not going to really go out into the world. The opposite temptation is to go out into the world, but to not be salt and light when I go out into the world. The hardest thing in the world is it's easy in this moment with you guys to to talk about our faith. It's so easy in this room. If we can't do it in this room, we're not going to do it anywhere. This is the easiest place to talk about our faith. And when we go out into the world, there's such pressure to want to be friendly, but not to be very forthright about our faith. But my goodness, what an incredible thing it is to be around unbelievers and to not be a jerk, but also to be clear and joyful about what you found in Jesus. To just have a, a light that shines. Like those who look to the Lord are radiant. Their faces are never covered in shame. To have a real boldness and a light that shines from us. And the warning is, don't hide your light. Don't hide your light. I want to close with a story. Now, I'm going to warn you, it's going to take me a few minutes to read this. So it's going to be longer than you might think. I'm going to read part of an article and this is just from about a month ago. Uh, at Mark Dever's church in, in D.C., one of their associate pastors was Michael Lawrence for a long time. He's now moved to Oregon and planted a church there. And after Roe v. Wade was overturned, he has a very interesting story that I'd like to read to you that very much puts flesh on some of these principles from today. So please listen carefully, and then I will, I will pray for us. It's called, When the Mob Shows Up the Monday After Roe, written on June 29th. About 7 p.m. on Monday, three days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe, between 75 and 100 people assembled at a park near the church I pastor in Portland, Oregon. In broad daylight, they marched to our office building two blocks away. Half of the block is occupied by our building, which in addition to our church offices contains a nonprofit community-oriented coffee shop, and our largest tenant is First Image, the local crisis pregnancy and post-abortion care ministry. Okay, so they have a crisis pregnancy center that meets there on their campus with their church. There is no crisis, uh, oh, excuse me, the, the center is not on site, but their headquarters are on site, the administrative executive offices. The crowd marched around the entire city block, chanting the sort of slogans you've heard on the news since Roe was overturned. There was a heavy police presence in the neighborhood, 
as this had been openly organized with calls for violence and direct action. The authorities had warned us a couple of hours earlier, so most of our ground floor tenants had already removed sensitive or personal belongings. As the crowd approached, the people contracted to board up the ground floor windows understandably and wisely withdrew. So they're trying to protect the windows. They didn't have time. They had to get out of there before the mob arrived. The job was only half finished. After circling the block, a group of well-prepared and fully masked individuals broke off. Using umbrellas and masks to shield their identities from security cameras, they smashed almost every ground floor window on the side of the building that had not yet been boarded up and covered the building in vile graffiti aimed specifically at Christians. The damage was done in just moments. With the rest of the marchers, they then marched back to the park, shedding their black Antifa-style clothing on the way. They got in their cars and left, but not before some drove around the block, taunting the police, calling them pigs, and telling them to solve real crimes. The level of organization and coordination was striking, including sending a scout 30 minutes before the rally to photograph the security cameras and note how to avoid being identified. Now, this part's called the aftermath. One rep- so that is, is that persecution for righteousness' sake in our country last month? Absolutely that is. How did they respond, Michael Lawrence and his church? One reporter covering the event was assaulted by several in the crowd with umbrellas and mace, but thankfully was not seriously hurt. A few window AC units were damaged, and there's a lot of glass to replace and graffiti to remove. But in answer to the prayers of many, there was no fire, no serious injuries, and no further attempts to damage the building. We don't take this for granted. A little more than two weeks ago, one of the centers operated by First Image, this clinic, this, this uh, care center, uh, was uh, in, in a nearby suburb, was firebombed and declared a total loss. So their neighboring one was burned to the ground. By 8 p.m., Police tape cordoned off the entire building, and security guards remained present throughout the night. As I stood on the other side of the tape that night, one of my associate pastors who's, who lives on the block walked out of his backyard. Associate pastor comes out. It was filled with non-Christian neighbors who were shaken up by the event. He and his wife were comforting them and using the opportunity to explain our hope in Christ. Then the manager of our coffee shop walked up to me. She told me of all the regulars who would arrive in the morning Many of them, she said, would express sympathy and concern. We thought together of what she and her staff could say in response that would make clear that while we're not surprised, Jesus warned us of the world's hatred, we're not filled with hatred in return. We love our city and our neighborhood because Jesus loved us and loves them too. Our neighbors sense this, even if they don't understand it. Why else would several of them show up late that night to offer help, wood, and tools as we boarded up the broken windows. There, this is unbelievers there. Their distress at our trouble and readiness to help us wasn't because they agree with us, but it could be because they've seen our good works and so give glory to our Father who is in heaven. This morning, cleanup continues. Thankfully, the offices of the crisis pregnancy ministry were the ones boarded up in time so their work can continue without interruption. Our community coffee shop was Able to open, just as we expected, many of our non-Christian neighbors and regulars have expressed real sympathy. And I love this. Our staff is praying for gospel conversations and gospel opportunities to come out of what can only be described as persecution, especially with our neighbors who do not share our ethics or our faith, but who share our sadness at the violation of a shared neighborhood space and the unjust treatment of the people they know. He closes with prayer requests. He says, 
We know we need to stay alert to the possibility of further violence and harassment in the coming weeks and months. As we do, please pray this, that our staff and members would seize every opportunity for the gospel. Many people are asking us this morning how we're doing, and every one of these conversations is an opportunity to explain our hope in Christ. Pray for the physical safety of our staff and members, that we'd have wisdom as we cooperate with police in their investigation. Listen, the desire for temporal justice and the desire for gospel mercy for the guilty are not incompatible. It's not wrong to call the authorities when this has happened. We don't want this to be an opportunity for the enemy to sow seeds seeds of fear, bitterness, or suspicion that would cause us to pull back. We want to be those who demonstrate the truth and power of the gospel as we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The last thing I'll say is, when these moments occur to us, as they may with more frequency in coming years, we must respond to others as Jesus responded to us in our sin, which is loving those who persecute us, praying for our enemies, and wanting them to truly come to know Christ and the saving message of the gospel. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for faithful believers who endured a real taste of genuine persecution and did not respond with hostility, but responded with a desire to truly share the gospel with those around them, a desire to love those who have mistreated them. God, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in persecution when we are reviled when we are slandered for the name of Christ, that we would rejoice because our reward is great in heaven. And we show in those moments ourselves to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God, to whatever degree we're not being as salty or as bright as we should be, please convict us of sin, help us to confess that sin, and give us the desire to stand up and to begin walking more fully in the freedom and joy that is only available in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.